saying things. She would sit right beside him just whispering. But she wasn't talking to him. We found it in her pocket. She didn't believe in God. What does it matter whether he believed? I found mom's diary. What if she saw something? Out there. Told y'all not to come. There are things in this world, horrible things, wicked, and they come for whoever they want. I saw something. She wasn't crazy. Do you smell him? He's close now. He's not out there. He's already here. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of Fresh Cuts. I'm Mike, one-third of your very familiar hosting team tonight. With me, as always, it's Mr. Venom. How are you doing, Venom? Greetings and salutations, my dark and wicked listeners. Yes, I am doing very well, Mike. How are you doing? I am doing well. Um, this is a movie tonight that we, or at least... I'll say I've been looking forward to since I saw some feedback on social media about it. Did it live up to uh, what I've heard? I will find out shortly, but uh, doing well, man. Um, joining us as well, should be familiar with this individual by now, unless you're like a brand, brand new listener. It's Don and Nelly. How you doing, Don? Hey, what's going on, folks? Yep, uh, once again, great to be here. All right, well... Um, today we are talking about a movie that is, uh, let's see how would I, actually, I'm not even going to try to describe it. We're just going to say what it is. It is called, yeah, I don't, I don't want to even get into too much of that yet. It's called the dark and the wicked. And let's see, let's see what I got here. If it's even worth saying (laughs) the synopsis off IMDb this time. Yeah, not too bad. Okay, on a secluded farm in a nondescript rural town, a man is slowly dying. His family gathers to mourn, and soon a darkness grows, marked by wicked nightmares and a growing sense that something evil is taking over the family. So, that, yeah, that sets it up pretty well without giving away too much. So, um, we will jump right into our general thoughts. Venom, take it away. All right. I think the easiest thing for me to say is I fucking love this movie. This movie instantly shot up to my top three for the year. This is, in my opinion, 2020's Hereditary. 
uh, in the sense that this is going to be a divisive film. I think most horror fans are going to appreciate it, though it is very slow-paced, and for some, it may not have the payoff that they're looking for at the end, um, much like Hereditary, but I think that um, stylistically, this movie is amazing. It's got you know incredible soundtrack, uh, a, an amazing score, great cinematography, some really really cool set pieces, some amazing long shots. There are two or three shots in this movie that are just long shots of the camera panning out while action is happening in the background. And it's just so stellar the way they incorporate that with the kind of minimalist soundtrack. The soundtrack is basically filled with a lot of country instruments, fiddles and uh, vibraphones and, you know, things like that. Um, very reminiscent, like I said, maybe not as electronic as the hereditary soundtrack, definitely more of a more homegrown, you know, live playing artists. But, uh, wow, uh, some of the set pieces in here, like I said, are absolutely stunning. Some of the imagery in here is just chilling, absolutely chilling. I mean, this movie actually gave me uh, a little bit of a shake, you know. Um, it does have some jump scares, which I know is going to be a big complaint from some people. But when it comes to me personally, it's always the fake-out jump scares that I'm more pissed off about. I don't mind jump scares if they're both uh, legitimate and earned. And in this movie, I feel like all the jump scares are earned. You know, there's uh, there, it's not a jump scare fest by any stretch. This isn't The Nun or La Llorona by any stretch of the imagination. But there are still a few that, you know, if you're not a fan of the jump scare, they might start to, you know, bother you by the, by the third act, especially, you know, with the movie kind of ending on a jump scare, which I know a lot of people are not into. But overall... Really, really love this movie. Now, I will say that I have issues with the end. Uh, the ending is a little too ambiguous for me, but if you kind of piece together the information that you're that you're receiving throughout the film, then it's fairly obvious, you know, who the entity is at the end of the film. And, you know, even though the ending is a little ambiguous, it's not hard to kind of plug in the pieces yourself and kind of make up a satisfactory ending. Um, but overall, the atmosphere of this movie, the performances, the direction, um, for those who don't know, this is directed by Brian Bertino, who famously directed The Strangers. And The Strangers is another divisive horror movie in the uh, in the genre. You know, a lot of people loved it. A lot of people hated it. A lot of people hated how bleak it was. But I mean, that's I just most... hated how boring it was. Oh, see, I I am the complete opposite. That movie was not fucking boring. I was riveted, edge of my seat the entire fucking movie. It was so realistic that you know. I'm, I and the funny thing is, is that um, at the time, my wife and I actually watched it in a cabin in the woods because we were away for the weekend and it's just we both had really uneasy sleep that night and that's when you know a horror movie is effective so uh for my money the strangers was one of the best movies of that year still one of the best slashers ever my opinion only so you know don't don't get too heated about it there listeners but yes so, um, but luckily, uh, as everyone knows, I tend to go into my movies blind. I don't watch trailers. I don't read synopses. So I had, I actually had no idea that Bertino, 
um, directed this movie. So I'm very glad because it would have, if I had known that, it definitely would have elevated my expectations for the film. But, you know, going into it with, you know, low expectations and um, just hearing some of the feedback from other podcasters and horror fans, I was very excited to watch this. And for my money, it lives up to everything that I've heard about this film, every positive thing that I've heard about this film. I absolutely, you know, 100% agree with. Um, I understand that I'm probably going to be a little bit higher on this movie than most because this movie is right up my my wheelhouse. Excuse me. Um, Some of my favorite movies of the last decade include Hereditary, The Witch, um, Agazuza, just a lot of slower-paced films that don't work for a lot of horror fans but absolutely positively work for me. So I'm going to cut this off right now basically saying I absolutely fucking love this movie. I loved every minute of it. It is. It shot up to my top three for 2020 and on... Uh, I've already watched it three times. I, I rewatch my top 25 at the end of the year so I can, you know, kind of finalize my top 10. And, you know, I would not be surprised if this movie ends up at my number one. Maybe on, on subsequent rewatches, I might be a little bit easier on the ending. Uh, but right now, the ending is really the only thing keeping this movie from being my number one movie of 2020. So. I will leave it at that and just say this is a very high recommend for me. It's only available on VOD currently, so you're going to have to pay, you know, anywhere from 7 to $12, depending on where you rent it. But I personally say it's worth every penny. Um, so I'm going to leave it at that. Mike? Yeah, I think Shudder has some type of distribution deal, so I think eventually it's it'll probably hit Shudder. Yes, February um, 2021. Okay. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I was anyone, actually yeah. yeah just about to mention that yeah it's scheduled for 2021 yeah thanks for interrupting. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So if you can hold out for two or three like three or four more months it'll be there on Shutter but mm-hmm. yeah at the moment it's VOD only like Venom said. Yeah. All right. So Don, let's get to you for your general thoughts. So I am just a tick below Venom like we usually are on these kinds of films. Um, it's not in my top five. It's a dark horse to make it, but it is no doubt about it. A top 10 for sure. Um, I love this, uh, the bleak atmosphere, the slow burn, uh, once again, just like relic this year. Um, I dug the slow burn. Um, just there's enough going on that it keeps my interest. Um, I love the story. I love what's going on. I love the darkness of it. I love just, the fact that it's not necessarily, like he said, a jump scare fest, but they appear at just the right moments to keep my to keep me from like nodding off. So it feels a little slow, but I, I said this again, and I'm going to use it. I said this on another show, and I can't remember, but I'm going to use it for this one. Is that it's a very measured approach where they the jump scares come in just at the right moment for you to keep from nodding off. So it's a very slow, but it's a deliberately slow one that it works for me. And the pacing keeps me, keeps me interested just enough for the scares to be effective. Uh, My issue, I just, I can't buy a lot of the stupidity that keeps them there. Just, I think the escalation of events just grows to a point that, I, you know, it's something that we're going to discover over the course of the walkthrough, but it, I, I can't buy the stupidity of staying there 
especially as the escalation of the events occur and the the that's the good the best thing about it in the film actually over the atmosphere is that everything just keeps building and you know the events get darker they get much bigger they get grander in scale and scope and when when that occurs the pacing to this keeps it in, keeps it interesting but it just doesn't really feel like they really should have stayed there and kept experiencing everything. So uh, for me, that's my only real knock against it. It's not even really that detrimental to be sure, but it's still an issue that I have with it enough to keep it out of the top five from what I have and what I assume to get to over the next month or so. But uh, for sure, this is a top 10. Uh, It's, got a spot already maybe it's six or seven but yeah uh top 10 of the year for sure i absolutely love it and again a slow burn that works but definitely worthwhile and definitely recommend it okay so for me hereditary was my number one of 2018 so if that gives you any indication of how much i like this movie (laughs) yeah i i loved it this is definitely going to be a top 10. I usually don't like narrowing, narrowing it down too much more ahead of time to say like exactly where it is, but this is a surefire bet to be somewhere in my time. I mean, unless like what over the next half or month and a half, I just stumble upon like so many good movies. Um, I don't see how this wouldn't be in my top 10. Um, this movie hits on a lot of themes where uh, we've actually seen a trend lately and i don't know if i would say hereditary star i'd have to go back and like look through all the movies in the last few years that deal with these kind of um family themes but um in all expound upon that a little more in spoilers i just don't want to say too much to like give away um too much at the moment during general thoughts but I love the slow burn um, on the on the jump scare thing, which you guys were saying, I think, you know, the way I would put it is jump scares in movies. Uh, there's a difference between a movie relying on them and a movie using them as like to enhance what's already going on. I feel like this movie, um, the jump scares are placed in good spots and the movie doesn't rely on it because you we've probably seen many you know similar and i would probably say lesser movies where throughout the running time it's just jump scare after jump scare that's like all there is to it there's there's not much else to provide that would scare you or not but i think this movie is just chilling is how i would describe it It, it's it it start you you know you get your kind of uh situation with the family what's going on and it just slowly builds from there um the ending it's an abrupt ending i know some people most people have like have made a comment on that saying like that's like the one um thing that they might have um contention with but overall i i really don't have much negative to say about this i've only watched it once i watched it today i'm already like wanting to go watch it again later tonight because it's just such a well-made movie. It's acted by everyone so well. Um, I, I think what this movie, another thing this movie does really well 
is it doesn't really telegraph where things are going too much. I feel like we're in the same suspense as the characters as far as just just what in the hell is going on. I mean, you have a basic idea of there's a situation that's deteriorating, um, uh, you know, involved around a loved one, but you're not 100% sure. I, I feel like it pulls you in different ways about the possibilities of what could happen. So you're you're kind of being manipulated along with the characters until like the end when they kind of like you know it comes out exactly what's going on but i and then i would also say that there's a scene in this movie that nearly rivals uh the conclusion to the mist except in this movie it's not even the actual conclusion conclusion of the movie, but it reminded me, like it gave me that kind of feeling in my stomach when it happened, where I literally, I put my hands on my head, like, Oh my God. Mm -hmm. Like, and, uh, it's not the same thing. So I didn't like for anyone that's weird, like, Oh my God, no, it's not, it's not the scene out of the mist in this movie. It just gave me a very similar gut punch feeling like, Oh my God. Like, wow. It's it's like the reverse mist. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, almost. Yeah, exactly. So, but yeah, you're right. That that scene is just so goddamn powerful, and mm-hmm. you almost see it coming right away. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but like as soon as you can kind of see the character make the decision to do what he's gonna do, instantly I'm like, no, don't do it, don't do it, and I was right. <laughs> yeah, be, because be, and the reason why it's so effective because a little. A little bit earlier in the movie, he's about to do the same thing, and yeah. he kind of knocks himself out of it. You know, he comes to sort of or whatever. Yeah. So you think there's a chance that, like, okay, he he will avoid it or something will happen, and uh, just uh, about uh, that, man. But yeah, anyways, I gotta yeah. figure. I gotta figure that hits you hard too, since uh, you also have a wife and two daughters. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah, I can't imagine oh. coming home to that scene is really you know something that any parent wants to see. But uh, yeah, we're talking. Uh, we're already talking too much. We need to get to our uh, walkthrough because there's a lot in this movie to dissect, and I think we're gonna have a good time with this one. Yeah, let's do it. So I, it's, it's a high recommend for me. Oh yeah, it sounds like it's a high recommend from all of us. Like I said, if you're a fan of Hereditary or The Witch. Um, the Baba Duke, kind of some of the slower paced supernatural movies that have come out over the last uh, couple of decades. Yeah, this movie is going to be right up your alley. And uh, ultimately, I don't really think this is as good as some of the movies that I mentioned. Um, the, me- the movies I mentioned, I would probably still consider slightly higher if I had to rate them. But this yeah. movie, I mean, for this for this year especially, this definitely came out of nowhere. Uh, no pun intended, it came out of the literal dark and just, you know, totally surprised the hell out of us. Came out with no fanfare. I had um, you know, heard, it, I heard a few of it from its early screenings earlier in the year that this was supposed to have been pretty good. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. I heard it played at Fantastic Fest earlier yeah, in the year. I heard, um, I'd heard people from there, I think that was the one. Yeah, exactly. That's what I had heard, too. Just all the positive feedback uh, coming back from its festival run. Um... You know, but obviously I try not to let that kind of hype affect me too much. So I tried to go into this as blind as possible, even though there are one or two podcasters out there that instantly, you know, proclaim this one of the best movies of 2020. 
Um, but I tried not to let that affect my viewing. And honestly, I don't think it did. You know, I, I like to think that I can go into these movies and come up with my own conclusions. And ultimately, I, I, I'm, I can't say enough good things about this movie. Like I said, once we get to the ending, we'll talk about some of the issues that I and others will have with that ending. But, you know, it, it for whatever it works, uh, for whatever it's worth, it still works for me. Because ultimately, this is an ambiguous story. We, we know the basics of what's going on, but they never give us exacts. They never give us exact names or details or what this family even did to deserve the treatment that they're getting. So, you know, there's a lot of ambiguity to the yeah. film. That that's but, that's one thing I was gonna say. But I wasn't sure if I wanted to say in general thoughts or spoilers, but this one oh, yeah. in the movies in the movies we've compared it to, this one feels like less. Yeah, there's less structure to what's going on, like a purpose. Absolutely, no, you're absolutely right. Yeah, no, um, I mean that's what I was. Uh, Mike just brought something up there. I was I was really debating on whether or not doing that myself because that is one of the other small little things for me is. I couldn't even remember what their family name was. Did they even mention that? No, we don't get the name. Yeah, that's what I'm saying is that I couldn't even remember like what they were all called. Uh, we don't get the family name, and we don't even know what mom's name is. I don't think anybody ever says mom's name in the movie. Dad's name we know because of the of mom's diary. Yeah. But I don't think we ever actually get mom's name or the family. We definitely don't get the family name. That's a definite. All right, so uh, with all that being said, let's go ahead and jump into what I hope will be a quicker walkthrough than some of my previous ones. So uh, away we go. Our movie opens on an isolated farm out in the middle of nowhere. It is nighttime, and we see a single old woman sitting in like a sewing room. Uh, just, you know, doing some kind of, you know, knitting or sewing and, you know, the camera pans out and shows that the room is filled with a lot of naked uh, mannequins that a lot of which seem to be looking right at the woman sitting at the table. Um, after a while, uh, the old woman goes outside to check on the goats in the barn. We see a barn filled with a lot of goats. Um, there is no door to the barn. Basically, what they have set up is a noise trap. Basically, they have like a couple of lines of rope going across the entrance of the of the barn with like bottles and keys and other noise making implements on there. So basically, if anything actually were to go into the barn, I assume they would hear this noise from the house, though. Eh, it's kind of iffy because it is just bottles and, you know, metal objects and things like that. And the house isn't exactly next to the barn. So, you know, there's a little bit of suspension of disbelief there, but whatever, you know, we, we get the noise trap. We see uh, the old woman verifying that the trap is set. Uh, she starts to feed the goats and then the noise trap goes off. We hear, you know, the bottles and cans clanking. Uh, she turns around, doesn't see anyone there. Um, I'm sorry, she's not actually out at this point. That's right. At this point, she's back in the house chopping vegetables. But we hear the noise trap go off outside, and then we get a couple of quick swish pans uh, through, like, all the goats as they kind of scatter in fear. Did you guys notice the face in one of those shots? There is a distinct uh, humanoid face in one of the shots, it, it's really quick. It's literally a frame or two long. But if you look really, really close, you will see a face of something. 
um, kind of mixed in with all the goats in the uh, in the barn. And if you actually freeze on it, which I did, it kind of looks like death from the Bill and Ted movies. Not quite as not quite as goofy looking. Like he looks a little bit darker, not quite white skinned, but you know he's bald, uh, you know hairless basically. He looks angry, but like I said, it's it's only there for like a quick frame, and it is dark, so you can't really get a lot of details. But there's definitely something there. So. After that, we see the old woman in the kitchen, and she is chopping vegetables. And as she's chopping vegetables, we hear a dining room chair slide in the kitchen. When she turns around, the chair, there is a chair right next to her. And, And in the previous shot, the chair was at the table. And like I said, the sound effect gives away the fact that the chair moved on its own. She turns around, stares at the chair for a second, and then we get our title card, The Dark and the Wicked. Uh, So that is our cold open. Uh, We then are introduced to a brother and sister pair, brother named Michael, sister named Louise. Uh, They arrive at at the farm to help uh, their mother take care of their invalid father. Um, Their father, who is very old and still alive, is basically bedridden. Um, I don't know if he's comatose, if he's officially in a coma, or if he's just an invalid, you know, bedridden old man, but uh, basically dad doesn't speak the whole movie. He's just kind of a body in bed for the majority of the film. Um, At dinner that evening, um, Louise and Michael get into an argument with mom because mom is very adamant that she did not want them there. That, that, That really is like a one of the many recurring themes throughout the movie where mom constantly is like, I didn't ask you to come here. I don't want you here. You're not needed here. That was probably the most hurtful thing that she said. She actually looks right at her daughter and says, you're not needed here. And then just walks out of the room. So, you know, obviously, you know, we're looking at some kind of disjointed family that has, you know, some emotional issues, maybe, Um, As the movie goes along, we find out that sister and brother don't really visit or call their parents as much as they should and that they've kind of been left alone on the family goat farm. So, you know, there's there's guilt that these people are dealing with that Michael and Louise are dealing with. But um, so, like I said, um, you know, we have that scene at dinner where mom kind of yells at them, admonishes them for even coming when she didn't ask them to. And then she just goes to bed. Uh, Then brother and sister go outside to have a cigarette and they just have kind of a a nice heartwarming scene about life and, you know, uh, the fact that they are kind of estranged. They haven't seen each other in a while. They both ask they both ask each other, when was the last time you called mom to find out how dad was doing? And, you know, they both are kind of disconnected to the whole situation. Um, then we go back into the house and we see sister just kind of walking around the house, getting the lay of the land. And at one point, the front door opens by itself, just completely opens by itself. She goes to walk towards the front door to close it. As she walks by, you see a shadow person in the background, a ghost, uh, or it could be one of the parents, but it's basically, you know, a male figure standing, you know, in shadow in the background, 
when she walks after she closes the door and walks back into the house, the shadow is still there, but now it's very solidly a female shadow. And then the shadow speaks and it's, it's her mother basically just asking her, you know, what's going on, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, this is kind of a theme also throughout the movie of shadow people. Um, we do see multiple shadow people uh, throughout the movie. It's probably the same person. And that, the character, uh, believe it or not, actually is the Wicked. If you actually w look at the credits, there actually is a credit here for a character called hmm. the Wicked. So um, we actually have a name for our antagonist. Um, though by the, by the time we get to the end of the movie, I think we'll all have kind of a solid opinion of who the Wicked actually is. But we'll get to that. Um so then it's that evening, mom is seen uh, in the kitchen chopping vegetables, um, you know, preparing dinner for the following evening. And of course, this is a horror movie with a woman chopping vegetables, so we all know what's coming. Uh, we've seen it in multiple movies before. Most recently, we saw it earlier this year in The Color Out of Space, where the mom there is also cutting vegetables. And, uh, you know, the same thing happens. So, as expected, mom is chopping vegetables, and she ends up, you know, she's kind of daydreaming. You can see that she's kind of fixated with something else. And just, bef and, uh, just before anything, you know, nefarious happens, once again we hear the chair in the dining room or in the kitchen slide towards her. She turns around, sees, or actually this time she ignores the chair. She doesn't even turn around to look at it. But she continues chopping her vegetables. Of course, the music is swelling up. The camera is zooming into her hands. So we all know what's coming. And slice. Uh, Grandma ends up chopping off three of her fingers. But the major difference with this movie than what we've seen with other uh, films who handle this type of situation, instead of um, mom freaking out instantly and instantly realizing, oh, shit, what did I do? No, uh, mom gets a shit-eating grin on her face and starts dicing her fingers. Yes, she is fucking dicing her fingers into little pieces. Um, then finally, she starts yeah. to hear a voice. Um, you know, she starts to hear a voice like, you know, we don't hear any specific words. It's just a lot of moaning and, you know, screaming and things like that in the background. Nothing necessarily discernible. You might be able to pick out a word here and there, but for the most part, it's just gibberish. And, um, you know, mom stops chopping her fingers and the scene fades to black. So it is now. I the think, next that, uh, I think uh, the, the dicing of the fingers after she cut them off, like really added to it because it's like, oh, yeah. The whole time she's chopping the carrot, I think you start to assume, oh, here, you know, it's going to be one of those scenes where she cuts off her fingers. But the fact that, like, then she keeps just cutting them into smaller pieces, it's just yeah. like, oh. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's pretty intense. And we do uh, actually get to see it all, folks. No no yeah. off-screen stabs or kills here. We, uh, I, I did forget to mention the gore in uh, the general uh, – in our general thoughts. The movie does have a good amount of gore in it, a good amount of blood – um, it's not a gore fest by any stretch, but for people who are interested, I obviously I should have said this during the uh, spoiler free section, but yeah, if you are interested in supernatural movies that actually have a decent amount of gore, this is a good option. So and pretty visceral style gore too. I think that's what yeah. makes it effective. It's it looks the way they shoot it and the way that they actually give you the shots of what's yeah. going on. 
Um, yeah, it's, it's well done. Yeah, like nothing is really over the top as far as the gore goes. It's very grounded in reality, which makes it that much scarier. So, yeah, great job on the gore in this film. So, um, like I said, it's the next morning. Um, Louise and David get up. They find the kitchen all bloody with bits of fingers in the sink, but they can't find Mom. Uh, they go running throughout the farm, and unfortunately, they find Mom hanging in uh, the barn. In you know the barn that we've had multiple scenes in already. The goats are all there, and uh, you know, as as um, Louise and David get closer and closer to the barn, we see the goats all pile out of the barn, and then Louise is the first one to see her mother hanging there. This is also the first of those long pullback shots that I was talking about. Basically, from the moment that uh, they go outside, there's just a very long and slow shot where the camera pulls out first to show mom's feet hanging there. And then, you know, they show Louise finding her uh, and then David joins her. They start to cut her down. You know, they grab something for um, Louise to stand on so that she can try to cut her mother down. This is all one long single shot, and it really is gorgeous because it's, it's kind of shot in shadow, too, because the camera's in the barn, but it's pointing towards the entrance. So you're getting all the light from outside, but everything in the barn is in shadow. So uh, just another just gorgeous shot from uh, Bertino and whoever his cinematographer is here. Um <laughs> So, like I said, mom, unfortunately, has hung herself. And um, the next morning, um, there is a live-in nurse that takes care, not live-in, excuse me, but a day nurse. There's a day nurse that takes care of the dad while mom is working on the farm, taking care of the goats and whatnot. But now that mom is gone, uh, the day nurse shows up, you know, offers her apologies to the siblings and lets them know that she can set up, you know, a night nurse if they need one. But Louise relents and says, no, 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 I'll stay here. I'll take care of dad. Mom would have wanted me to do that. Blah, blah, blah. Even though mom spent the first half hour of the movie telling her you shouldn't have come here. She's convinced that mom wants her to stay and take care of her dad. So whatever, you know, family obligations and whatnot. Um at this point, the nurse actually starts to confide in the siblings and starts to tell them, you know, I didn't want to tell you this yesterday in front of your mother, but, um, you know, I've been hearing her talk to people, talk to, um, it'll look like she's talking to uh, David, her husband, the invalid dad, uh, but she's actually talking to someone else. The nurse is convinced she's it's almost like she's having a back and forth conversation with something in the house. And she's like, well, you know, I didn't want to tell you this while your mother was here in case she protested or whatever. But yeah, uh, the nurse basically confides that information to them. Um, there's a scene where Louise uh, feels guilty for not communicating with her mother more. Um, uh, Michael, the brother, doesn't seem as apologetic. He's very just nonchalant about it. Like, yeah, we didn't talk to her more. What can you do? She's gone. You know, you know, very matter of fact attitude about it. Michael's obviously very uh, disconnected from this family, much more than Louise. Even though Louise has physically been disconnected from the family, you can still tell that there's a, an emotional attachment there. Louise still cares about her mother and father, despite how her mother might treat her and despite her father being, you know, basically, you know, a, a comatose, invalid, whatever you want to go with. So, 
Um, you know, Louise obviously still has that connection there. And like I said, she feels guilty for, you know, everything that's go that happened to her mother and that she didn't try to do more to help her and blah, blah, blah. So it's now that evening. Uh, Louise decides to take a shower. And while she's in the shower, uh, she actually has a supernatural occurrence where she actually sees her father standing in the bathroom looking down at her and um the dad had the dad's eyes are completely whited out they're just white no pupils and dad is doing that twitching ghost demon thing that uh some people might recognize it from bill malone movies movies like fear.com uh william malone was known for using that technique where everybody's head would be like very twitchy moving very fast you know i'm sure there's a name for that but i don't know what it's called so let's just go with the twitching face uh, you know ghost or demon uh so basically like i said uh dad shows up in the bathroom it completely freaks out Louise. She falls to the floor. Dad is basically sitting there with his eyes whited out, speaking in some kind of gibberish language that she doesn't understand. Uh, she ends up calling for her brother, Michael. When Michael walks into the bathroom, Dad is nowhere to be found, and Louise is just cowering in the shower. They then go to the bedroom where Dad is, and there's Dad laying in the bed, you know, as quietly as he ever is, and... You know, Louise is, Louise is obviously embarrassed about the whole situation, so she just kind of brushes it off and doesn't really talk much about it. But then as Michael is exiting uh, the bedroom, he accidentally kicks over Mom's diary, which was hidden under the bed. Um, his foot must have slipped under the bed and kicked it out. Uh, so they find Mom's diary, they take it outside, and Louise kind of starts talking um, or, or starts reading entries um, you know, from uh, the diary, uh, let's see, uh, they start talking about, or they start reading passages how mom believes that the devil is there, and she actually specifies the devil. She doesn't say a demon or anything like that. Uh, that the devil is on the farm and that he wants David's soul, dad's soul, basically, and that, you know, that he's doing everything he can to get his soul. She also um, reads a passage from the diary where mom talks about one of the interactions that they had with the wicked, where um, she's lying in bed with her husband at night and she can hear something enter their bedroom and kind of climb onto the bed, actually climbing right on top of David. And, you know, whenever she would wake up and look, of course, you know, the thing would be gone, but she was convinced that there is something there trying to get her husband's soul. So, the next morning, Michael and Louise are in the kitchen, and Michael basically makes the realization that mom could not have killed herself. Um, she basically, um, you know, he makes the realization that there was no platform under her, no chair. There was no, basically no way for her to climb up there for her to kill herself. Um, but Louise, you know, doesn't seem real convinced that that's any kind of pertinent information. She just kind of brushes it off and, you know, uh, there, there's never any kind of police involvement or investigation or anything like that. They just chalk it up as a suicide and they go on. So um, they end up going to the coroner's office to identify mom's body and start the paperwork for her burial and funeral and while they're there, the coroner gives Mike and Louise a bag of Sunday school crosses. These are those little, like, 
um, sheet metal little crosses that they used to give out in Sunday school. You know, they, they never really lasted. You know, they bend really easy. Um, but they would hand them out in Sunday school. And David, or excuse me, Michael and Louise both look confused because they claim that their mother doesn't believe in God and has never believed in God. So it doesn't make sense that she would have a bag of crucifixes on her. But there it is. So uh, the scene then goes back uh, to the house where Luis is seen tucking her father into bed for the night. And as she's tucking him into bed, a spider crawls out of his mouth. And then another spider crawls out of his mouth. And they're basically crawling on his face. She instantly freaks out, you know, uh, trying to find out where the hell the spiders went because they disappear kind of quick. At the exact same moment, Michael walks in because he heard Louise screaming. She lets them know, oh, I thought I saw a spider, but I don't see it now. So, you know, no big deal, blah, blah, blah. Everyone goes, goes to bed. That evening, as Michael is in his bedroom sleeping, uh, the bedroom light, the light in his bedroom turns on by itself. Um, you hear the click, but there's no one in the room with Michael. Uh, Michael ends up getting up, turning the light back off, going back to bed. And then about a minute later, again, the light turns on. Uh, Michael is seen getting, like, you know, visibly aggravated. He gets up again uh, to turn the light off. But this time, as he turns the light off, he ends up seeing something outside of his window. He looks outside of his window, and there's Mom, smiling with her devilish, shit-eating grin on her face, staring right at Michael. And then suddenly she starts to float up in the air, very reminiscent of the end of The Witch, if you guys remember the end of The Witch. Um, mm -hmm. other, well, without the nudity and the writhing and dancing and all that stuff. But yeah, uh, basically Mom is standing there looking at David right in the eyes, smiling at him with her demonic smile, and she starts floating in the air. And anybody who has seen the movie poster for The Dark and the Wicked, that's the image uh, that's where that image comes from, of that solitary woman just floating in the air above the house. Um, really cool set piece. I love this scene. This one definitely, you know, um, instilled a sense of dread in me. Because at this point, it's like, ah, shit, this movie is turning into hereditary, and I already feel the anxiety coming. <laughs> so... Um, but then after, um, you know, Michael kind of rubs his eyes, as most people will do when they don't believe what they're looking at. And then he looks out the window again, and Mom is completely gone. Uh, so he starts to walk towards the light switch again to turn the lights on this time. And as Michael walks by the window, there's Mom on the near side of the window, inside the house. So she's actually inside Michael's bedroom, or, you know, the room that Michael's sleeping in. Um but she doesn't make her presence known to him until he turns on the light. And that's when we get one of the jump scares that I know a lot of people are complaining about. Basically, as soon as he turns on the light, mom shows up right behind him and gives him a nice quick scare. Um, but nothing else comes of that. You know, Michael falls over, mom disappears, and that's pretty much the end of that. Um, let's see. Um, uh, the next The next morning... Louise wakes up with what appear to be bloody scratches all over her face. Um, it looks kind of like, you know, it looks like blood and they're in lines, like line formations on her face. So she starts to freak out. She goes to the bathroom to check her face and realizes that it, they're not cuts. 
it's not blood and there's not cuts on her face. It all washes completely off and she's completely confused. Uh, so then she walks back to her dad's uh, bedroom and searches dad's bed and she finds a tube of lipstick in the bed with dad. So obviously somebody took the lipstick and drew these scratch marks on Louise's face in the night. Was it dad? Was it the wicked? Hmm. Maybe we'll find out. So, um, at that point, the phone rings and Louise picks it up and there's nobody on the line. So she hangs the phone right back up. The phone yet again rings. This time she picks it up visibly, you know, pissed off that somebody's crank calling her. And then all she hears on the phone is her mother's voice saying, I told you not to come. And then it hangs up instantly, which, of course, freaks her out to no end. But then suddenly she notices that there's someone outside. There's someone outside the house. Um, oh, no, no, that's later. I'm sorry. Uh, basically, what happens next is David comes home to the farm. Uh, he was probably out getting supplies or something. Lord knows what. But he's seen driving back to the farm. And when he gets to the end of his driveway, he sees a mysterious priest. Uh, basically standing there, checking out the mailbox, probably to see who actually lives at the location. Uh, David pulls up to him, pulls down his window and says, um, can I help you? The priest introduces himself as a friend of his mother and that he had just heard about what happened to his mother and that he wanted to visit and, you know, do whatever he could for uh, the invalid dad or for the two kids, you know, looking to help out, basically. Um <clears throat> At this point, they go into the kitchen, they give the priest the mom's diary that they found, and the priest is seen reading passages here and there, and they get into a conversation about mom's belief in the devil. Um, Louise and Michael tell the priest, well, this doesn't make sense because, you know, she doesn't believe in God. We've never been a religious family, you know, ever at any point in our lives, and um, they kind of accuse the father, uh, the priest, excuse me, they kind of accuse the priest of kind of putting these ideas in her head um, totally, you know, uh, without any kind of, you know, reason to do so. Just out of nowhere, they just decide, oh, you must be putting this shit in her head. Um, but the priest kind of, you know, calms Michael down, lets him know, hey, look, we all live with our truths. And then, you know, Michael kind of accuses the priest of, um, you know, saying that the devil exists. Is that your truth? You know, the father rebuts with a comment about, you know, everyone's truths, you know. And Michael instantly gets offended and he wants to kick the priest out um, because he basically isn't helping. He's not helping anybody feel better, blah, blah, blah. The priest then, you know, apologizes for, you know, upsetting them and leaves. But as... As he's leaving, Louise actually, or no, Michael asks him, do you actually think the devil is here or that the devil is coming? Something along those lines. And the priest kind of motions to the outside, the outside world, outside the, the house and says, um, there's nothing out there. The devil is already in this house. And then he walks out. And that's the last thing that he says to them uh, before walking out. Which, of course, infuriates Michael because he doesn't believe in any of this stuff, blah, blah, blah. Um, so to calm himself down, Michael gets on his cell phone and he calls his wife and daughters. Um, you know, nice little heartwarming scene where he talks about how much he misses his wife and the girls and how, you know, he can't wait to come home and how they're the most important thing in his life. 
um, blah, blah, blah. While he's on the phone with his family, Louise is outside the barn, uh, continuing to read the diary, you know, continuing to see if she could figure out what was going on in her mother's head. And at that moment, the noise trap goes off again. But this time, there's no one there. There's literally no one there. Uh, there's nothing to be seen. Even the goats are gone. The goats are out, um, you know, uh, feeding somewhere, you know, grazing, I guess. And um, But nothing really comes of that scene, and it just fades to black. Um, then that night, Mike confides in Louise that he saw Mom the night before. Um, because Louise basically starts talking about how she's seeing things, seeing things that can't possibly be real. And then Michael basically admits, without being asked even, so kudos to him, actually admits that, yes, I've, I saw something too, and I definitely was not imagining things that absolutely was real. He basically talks about how he saw his mother the night before, blah, 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 which of course freaks out Louise a little bit, but... You know, they, they both just end up deciding to go to bed for the night. That night, Louise is woken up by something outside, and she's basically staring. She's seen staring at her front door. Michael hears her and gets up and bas and asks her what's going on. Louise lets him know there's someone outside, or there's something outside. Uh, they're both just standing there staring at the front door. Finally, Louise approaches um, the window next to the door um, pulls back the blinds and sees, lo and behold, our priest is back. Uh, the priest from the last scene is now back. It's nighttime. It's like the middle of the night. I think they even mention it's like three in the morning. Um, and the priest is basically trying to get them to come outside. He keeps saying, hey, why don't you two come outside? I have something to tell you, you know. Why don't you guys come outside? No, no, you, you should come outside. Basically just keeps egging them on to come outside. Finally, Michael is about to go outside and Louise stops him. She grabs her cell phone and turns on the flashlight so that she can get a better look at the priest. And we get a close-up of the priest's face. And lo and behold, his eyes are whited out, just like Dad's eyes were in that shower scene earlier. Yeah. Um, but this time, the priest continues talking, continues talking about a him. You know, throughout the movie, there are multiple people that talk about a him. Can you, can you feel him coming? Can you smell him? Blah, blah, blah. So, you know, and, you know, this scene is no different. The priest kind of gives them a cryptic, um, you know, statement about what's coming. Uh, and then the phone rings in their house. And Michael tells Louise, do not answer that phone. Don't answer it. She ends up running into the house, and um, to her credit, she does not answer the phone, but what she does is she takes the phone off the wall and unplugs it so that no one can then call them. After she unplugs the phone, they go back to look outside, and of course, our priest is completely gone, um, nowhere to be seen, and that's pretty much the end of that. The next morning we see Charlie, and uh, I forgot, I'm sorry, I haven't introduced Charlie. Charlie is basically the only farmhand um, on the farm, the only person that actually works the farm with um, the mom. And he's an older gentleman. He looks like he's just as old as mom and dad, really. Uh, but he's a local, and, you know, it seems like he's been working with them for a long time, so he continues, you know, taking care of the goats and the property and whatnot. Um, like I said, he's seen in his house trying to call 
uh, the brother and sister, but of course they took their phone off the hook, or they unplugged the phone, so they can't tell that he's calling. He obviously is frantic for some reason. He's he's trying to call them. He's like, please pick up, pick up, please pick up. Uh, no one ends up picking up the phone, but then Charlie hears a noise in his house. He gets up and he goes to look, and there is a female there. Uh, I assume a female spirit, demon, whatever you want to go with. Uh, because she has cuts all over her. Um, uh, this obviously looks like a girl who maybe in life was a cutter, potentially committed suicide, which, you know, as we get through this movie, you'll see that's also another theme of this movie. But basically, uh, this female is, um, again, talking, you know, in tongues, talking gibberish. Uh, you're able to pull out a few words every now and again, evil, um, devil, hell, stuff like that. But for the most part, it's just like odd moans and screams and whispers and things like that. Um, and then the, the female uh, basically just starts cutting herself. She starts stabbing herself, cutting herself, cutting her arms, stabbing herself in the midsection, stabbing herself in the face. And, you know, Charlie is, of course, freaking out, doesn't know what to do. And finally, what we see the demon uh, or the female, excuse me, the female entity in question basically pops up right next to Charlie and she starts whispering something in his ear. Um, again, gibberish, you know, we're not sure what she's saying, but then we see Charlie pull his shotgun out and puts both barrels in his mouth and commits suicide. So, yeah. Unfortunately, Charlie, our farmhand, has been dispatched. Um, uh, in the next scene, Louise calls the mysterious priest because he did leave a number for her to contact him if she needed him. Uh, she calls the priest, and the priest claims that he has no idea who she is. Um, he claims that he's never been to Texas, which is where our movie takes place. It takes place in a, a small town in southern Texas. Uh, the priest on the phone basically says, look, I've never been to Texas. I have no idea what you're talking about. But then, he's, but then he starts to realize that Louise sounds familiar to him. And he actually starts talking about how he used to have a daughter and her name was Louise and that she killed herself at some point. And, you know, he was all surprised, you know, thinking for a second that it was actually her because he's like, oh, you even sound like her, blah, blah, blah. Um, which ends up freaking Louise out a little bit, and she ends up uh, just hanging up on him and leaving it at that. In the next scene, a doctor from the local hospital comes to visit uh, because Michael and Louise want to see if they can check Dad into a hospital so that he's not in as much danger by himself on the farm, or at least not by himself, but you know, by himself with a nurse during the day and Louise at night. Um, but unfortunately, the doctor says, no, there's no way your father is getting weaker every single day. And if I try to take him out of this house and take him to the hospital, he'll die before we even get to the freeway, um, which convinces Louise and Michael to just kind of relent and just be like, OK, fine, uh, you know, we'll we'll leave it there. Uh, we'll leave it at that. Um, in the next scene, our nurse um, and Michael are alone in the bedroom with dad laying in the bed. And Michael makes a comment about all the sadness that the nurse has probably had to live through. Excuse me, I got the hiccups. Okay. Um, yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the nurse basically starts talking about all the, 
you know, some of the sadness that she that she has experienced in her life because she is basically a, a hospice nurse, you know, that works from people's homes. And um, <clears throat> but then she she kind of changes the subject and says, well, actually, one of the things that I'm surprised about is all the love that I see in this job. Yes, there's a lot of people that die alone and die lonely, but. You know, when you see families come together because the patriarch or matriarch is, you know, coming to the end of their life, that it's kind of heartwarming for her to see families come together, uh, blah, blah, blah. And um, and that's kind of surprising to Michael. It almost sets Michael at ease a little bit. You can kind of see him kind of relax a little bit around the nurse. After that, uh, it's the next morning, and we see a goat with a freshly torn off leg. Basically, a goat with three legs. One of his legs has been very recently torn off because it's still bleeding. And uh, you can see the goat having trouble kind of trying to run away, but he's running away for dear life. So obviously, something scared the shit out of the goat. Michael ends up finding the goat. Uh, the goat ends up walking right up to Michael looking for help. When Michael sees that the goat has one of his legs have been ripped off, of course, Michael thinks that there might be wolves or some kind of other predators on the property. So he collects up Louise and they go out to see if they can find the rest of the goats. And unfortunately, they do find the rest of the goats. And what is one of the nicest shots in the film, we get this wide angle shot of a field absolutely covered with just dead and decimated goat carcasses all over the place. Some of them have had limbs ripped off. Some of them are just skeletons, like they've had their flesh, you know, torn from their bones. You know, some of them are missing uh, a head, blah, blah, blah. It's just a very horrific scene, especially if you're an animal lover, because, you know, goats are kind of cute. And yeah, so, I mean, it's just a field of dead goats and, um, Pretty intense little shot. Um, yeah, um, that night, Mike Michael goes out to the barn to check on the last few goats that are left because not all the goats go out to graze every day. If if the female goat is pregnant or if there are babies, uh, those goats will stay in the barn when the majority of them go out to graze. So Michael goes out to the barn to check on, you know, um, some of the baby goats, they're still there unharmed, thankfully. But while he's out there, uh, once again, the noise trap goes off. And Michael is aware that he's not alone in the barn. At this point, something actually does show up. I mean, we don't necessarily see anything, but we do get a POV shot of some kind of entity that's almost like flying around the barn, like above Michael and then down near his feet level things like that. So, I mean, you know, the director's basically trying to portray that, yes, there is something in the barn with him. But then um, suddenly out of the silence of the night, Michael hears his mother singing to him. Uh, she is singing a song that he instantly recognizes that, you know, that's mom singing to me. Um, all we hear is a voice and we see the camera pointed out of the barn and suddenly we see an image of an older and unfortunately very naked woman walking <laughs> towards the barn. Um, she is, it, it seems like they are trying to say that she is real because as she walks by the noise trap, she does set it off. It's not like she walks through it. She actually does trip the, the noise um, trap as she walks into the barn 
And uh, then once again, you know, uh, we get another uh, jump scare of mom, you know, coming up behind him. And then suddenly we see Michael kind of fighting his own hand, almost like an invisible force is trying to get him to slit his own throat. Uh, you could see him with a knife in his right hand. He starts to pull it up to his neck. But then you, with his left hand, you can kind of see him fighting it, um, trying to get it to stop. And then finally, um, he's able to break out of the hold of, you know, whatever the entity, whatever hold the entity has him under. He's able to break that. And, you know, he runs back to the house, goes back to his bedroom. He's breathing heavy. He's sitting on the edge of his bed and he's obviously very contemplative. He's thinking about what his next move is going to be. Um, suddenly we see uh, Louise in bed with her father, as she has been for the past few nights. Uh, she sleeps right there in the same room with him. But then as she's laying in bed, she hears something walk into the room. And once again, we start to hear, you know, the, the familiar gibberish and moans and voices that we've been hearing throughout the movie. Uh, we hear something climb up onto the bed and, and, you know, the, the music and all the sound effects are swelling up and getting louder and louder. Finally, when they reach their crescendo, she freaks out and notices that her father is not in bed with her. Uh, the spot, her father's spot is empty. He is gone and she doesn't know where he is. But then suddenly she looks, she hears um, something above her in bed and she looks up and there is her father floating above the bed almost like he's stuck to the ceiling like he's basically on the ceiling looking down at louise basically pointing at her um and then suddenly we just hear a voice a mysterious deep voice just yell get away and she instantly wakes up and her dad is it's the next morning she wakes up uh dad is back in bed right next to her but then she checks dad and she notices that he has new scratch marks on his neck and a couple of them are actually bleeding. So something obviously uh, did happen the night before. It's not all in Louise's head. At least that's kind of what the director is pointing towards. So um, at this point, right after she's, you know, woken up, scared, you know, she's sweating, she's hyper, not hyperventilating, but she's breathing heavy, and suddenly someone knocks at the door. Um, someone knocks at the front door. She goes down to find a, uh, a young, pretty girl standing there. She introduces herself as Charlie's granddaughter, and she lets Louise know about Charlie's suicide. Obviously, at this point, uh, the phone at the farm has been off the hook the whole time, so Michael and Louise have no real idea what's going on. But at the same time that this girl is knocking at the door, Louise realizes that Michael's gone. Um, he's nowhere to be found on the farm and his car is gone. So she's not 100% sure what's going on. Basically, the instant that she realizes Michael is gone, that's when Charlie's granddaughter knocks on the door, kind of interrupting that train of thought. Uh, she goes, um, like I said, the granddaughter lets her know about Charlie's suicide. And then out of nowhere, uh, the granddaughter suddenly turns kind of creepy. You know, she has a, a once again, one of these weird demonic grins on her face. And she basically says what a lot of people have been saying throughout the movie. Can you smell him? She asks Louise, can you smell him? Can you tell that he's almost here? And she just says he's rotting. 
and right when she says he's rotting, her eyes turn black and, you know, she kind of disappears. Uh, Louise obviously is freaking out. Um, she goes to close the front door, but then when she turns around, there's the girl again. But this time, you know, with her eyes completely blacked out for yet another jump scare, which, eh, that one wasn't nearly as effective. But since it was a legit jump scare, not a fake out, I'll still accept it. So, um, at this point, um, Charlie's granddaughter just disappears, just ends up leaving. And Louise basically is still frantic because she can't find Mike. She calls Mike's cell phone and realizes that Mike has left. Mike uh, left the night before. He's already are only a few minutes away from his house. And he basically just tells Louise, look, uh, you know, I wanted to, I didn't want to be there anymore. I knew you wouldn't leave dad there. I knew that you would, you know, want to stay there with dad. So I just took off. And honestly, not the worst decision in the world when you think about it, because he has he has a valid point. Louise is so committed to her father and making sure that he's taken care of. There's no way she would have left him. So Michael did have a valid point, though he's still a fucking piece of shit for leaving her alone on that farm. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't I don't have an issue with him making a decision to leave, but I still would have thought that he would have said something to her like look i've had enough i'm leaving i wish you would come with me and if not well that's your decision yeah and obviously it would have made more sense if there would have actually been somebody else there with her so that way he's literally not just leaving her alone with him well the nurse don't the nurse is still there at this point don't forget the nurse is still there when uh michael true but the thing is is that She's not the live-in nurse, is she? She's not no, no, she's live-in. not a live-in. She's the day nurse, yeah. Yeah. But, I so mean, she's... at the very least, you know, I mean, yes, Michael left her alone there, and it's a total shit, shithead move. Um, but at the same time, like I said, I kind of see his mentality, especially don't forget he had that suicide scare the night before where something was trying to get him to cut his own throat. So, you know, I'm I'm honestly not that surprised that he just took off. I mean, he was scared. He was worried that he was never going to see his wife and daughters again, so he just made an executive decision and took off. So yeah, I know. don't mind. I don't mind it. I would have just, you know, for me, if I'm in that situation, I would wait until somebody else was there to leave. Oh sure, yeah, but we're normal. Yeah. <laughs> That's the yeah. problem. We're not movie characters, so yeah, sadly. Yeah. Um, uh, so, yeah, so like I said, she calls Michael. Michael admits to her that, yeah, I left. I couldn't take it there anymore. I knew that you wouldn't leave Dad uh, alone, so I just went ahead and left you. While she's on the phone with Michael, she's crying. She's yelling at him. She's obviously very upset. While she's on the phone with Michael, we see the nurse in Dad's bedroom. Uh, she pulls out her knitting needles, which she always does. She's always seen knitting every time we see the nurse. And then she starts to hear voices. Uh, once again, a very familiar voice that we've been hearing throughout the movie. You know, the moans and the, you know, the, the gibberish language, blah, 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 that's being spoken. And, um, you know, she just smiles. Uh, she basically lets, off, lets out uh, a nice little smile. Not one of the big demonic ones we've been seeing, but just a little smile. Uh, we then see Louise hang up the phone violently on Michael. Yeah, obviously very pissed off at Michael. And then she hears a scream coming from her dad's bedroom. Uh, she runs into the dad's bedroom, and there is the nurse with one of her knitting needles stuck in her cheek. 
Uh, basically, she stabbed herself in the cheek with her knitting needles. Um, she she somehow is able to incapacitate Louise. Uh, I'm not sure if she knocked her out or whatever, or if something knocked her out, but yeah. Uh, she's able to incapacitate Louise and then drag her down into the kitchen. Once uh, they're in the kitchen, uh, the nurse once again hears a voice, and this time she acknowledges the voice and actually, uh, I, I forget if she nods or just says okay, something along those lines. Um, but then at that point, she proceeds to stab herself in both fucking eyes with her knitting needles. Just in one, pulls it right out, and then jams it right into the other one. She's, um, you know, at that point, she falls down to her knees. She's kind of looking around. Obviously, she's blinded. I mean, she just stabbed herself in the eye, in both her eyes. Um, she's kind of looking around almost incoherently, and then she just falls over dead on the floor um let's see um and yeah and that scene was pretty gross because like i said um she stabs herself in the cheek she pokes out both of her eyes she stabs herself in the midsection with the knitting needles i mean yeah she goes to town on herself gruesome gruesome death pretty goddamn gruesome um and then at this point we see michael arrive at home and i'm pretty sure this is the scene that uh our boy Mike was talking about earlier. This is a pretty fucking intense scene. Michael walks into his house, um, hoping to find his wife and daughters. Uh, it doesn't seem like anyone's home. He doesn't hear anything. So he decides to call his wife's cell phone. And then we hear a phone ringing from the next room. So he realizes, oh, okay, my, they must be here then. He walks into the dining room, and that's when we get um, a pretty horrific image of both of his daughters and his wife dead at the dining room table. It looks like the wife cut the basically slit the throats of the two girls. Um, one of them is even like staring at us. Her eyes are wide open, and she's like staring into the camera as the camera pans into the living room, which is a very unsettling shot. But yeah. There it is. And um, like I said, once Michael makes the realization of what's going on, his family is basically on the floor dead in front of him. He starts just obviously freaking out and he ends up doing exactly what we expect. He pulls his pocket knife out and just like the night before, he puts the knife up to his neck. But this time, I don't think it's an invisible force making him do it. I think this is Michael making the conscious decision to end his life because his family, who he has already mentioned multiple times throughout the movie, are the only things that are important to him in his life. I mean, he even flat out says they're the only things I care about when he's on the phone with Louise after he leaves. He's even, you know, they're the only things I care about. I'm going home to them. You can deal with dad, blah, blah, blah. So, like I said, Michael puts the knife up to his neck, uh, and this time he does not fight it and does slit his throat pretty violently. I mean, some of the throat slits in this movie are pretty fucking epic. Uh, the sound design on him is really nice, and then the after effect of the blood. You know, it's not like an arterial spray, like in a Japanese Yeah, movie. it's not played for, like, splatter mm-hmm. or, like, comedy. It's kind of like the slow slit that, like, actually seems like it takes force and, like, kind of like the gargling, choking on the blood after. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, pretty intense shot. 
Uh, we then see Michael just kind of uh, fall to the floor, um, sitting seated against the wall, and then he finally he takes his last breath and dies. Unfortunately, as he's taking his last breath, the camera pans back up to the dining room table where his family was all dead, and now the dining room table's empty and completely clean. There's nothing there. And at that exact moment, the front door opens, and there's Michael's wife and daughters just arriving home to find Michael on the dining room floor, you know, dead from an apparent suicide. They obviously scream, and that particular scene ends. But yeah, that was uh, definitely one of the most intense scenes of the movie. I mean, whether you're a parent or not, um, it definitely has uh, some weight, some emotional weight to it, and... And, and like I said, for a guy like our boy Mike, who actually has two daughters and a wife, I can't imagine that scene was easy for him to watch. So, yeah, mm. great little scene. Um, and then after that, um, after Michael is dead and the family finds him, we go back to the farm one last time. Um, you know, the nurse is dead. Louise is basically crawling on the floor. She, she, she's able to wake herself up. She comes to, I guess, after getting knocked out. Um, she starts to realize that there's no one in the house and that her father is upstairs by himself, um, unprotected. So she gets herself up, somehow is able to crawl her way up the stairs and into the dad's bedroom. She eventually gets uh, right up to the side of the bed where dad is breathing heavily. We then see dad have what looks like a little bit of an asthma attack. And then just like with Michael, Dad takes his last breath and slips into death. At the exact moment that Dad takes her last breath, Louise is there crying and apologizing to him for not being there. But then suddenly she hears Michael's voice. Um, it sounds like someone just walked in the front door, and it sounds like it's Michael. Um, and she actually yells out, Michael, you know, I'm up here, blah, blah, blah. But then she realizes, wait a minute. That's probably not Michael. And she actually yells out, get the fuck out of my house. Leave us alone. Blah, blah, blah. Then after that, we then hear mom's voice once again. Once again, mom's singing. And the voice is coming closer and closer to the bedroom door as Louise is, you know, on the floor next to the bed, kind of embracing her dead father's body. The voice outside the door gets closer and closer, but then suddenly stops. And we basically get one last jump scare where the Wicked himself jumps up out of the bed from where Dad was laying and attacks Louise. And uh, that's the end of our film. Uh, we fade to black and we go to credits. So, yeah, one last jump scare from the Wicked. And that is The Dark and the Wicked 2020. Like I said, I've got some issues with the ambiguity of that ending. Obviously, throughout the film, we get clues, or at least the people that live at the farm believe that it's the devil. You know, like I said earlier, not a demon, you know, not anybody of name, literally the devil. And, you know, obviously with the appearance of that priest, we kind of get a little bit of confirmation on that since... As we find out, the priest was never actually there. It was just someone that was sent to try to convince uh, Louise and Michael to kind of, you know, for whatever reason, leave the farm. That's why in the night scene, when the priest shows up and he's telling them, why don't you come outside? 
why don't you come outside? Basically, they're doing that, or he's doing that because the devil, or the wicked, if you will, can't take the dad if there's anyone around. Uh, mm-hmm. The dad has to be alone, and that's like one of the major themes of this movie, um, even to the point that the nurse actually says it, that the saddest thing in this world is a soul that's alone at the end. And, you know, that's that's kind of the whole gist of this movie. Think about it. Everyone who dies in this movie is by themselves. No one in this movie dies with anyone else around. You know what I mean? So And almost it, almost every death in this movie is self-inflicted in some way or the other. Exactly. I mean, obviously, the wicked, they, were, they were manipulated, but right. still. I figure the wicked, like I said, since the wicked couldn't take the dad's soul, I think um, the whole point was he was forcing these people to kill themselves so that you know, obviously they're leaving dad alone, susceptible to the attack of this, you know, entity of whatever kind. So, yeah, that's probably why, you know, everybody died by suicide. Everybody who dies in this film dies by suicide. You know, you can make the argument of Louise at the end, but like I said, it's just a jump scare. We can't guarantee that Louise is dead or, you know, potentially possessed or whatever. But, yeah, um, you know, we get that final jump scare, which, like I said, it's a little ambiguous. I, I understand the story, at least I, at least any holes that were left out by the director, I plugged in myself for my own satisfaction. But when it when a movie like this ends on a jump scare, it just, I don't know. Sometimes I feel like it's a ploy to try to set up a sequel. I don't think that's the case here. Um, I mean, not to say that they couldn't make a sequel to this movie. They absolutely could with like a whole nother family on a whole nother farm, blah, blah, blah. But, um, you know, when, when a jump scare is how you end your film, it, it looks too much like an attempt at a sequel or a franchise. And I'm not down for that. So this movie, if it weren't for the unsatisfactory ending, this would be my number one of the year. I mean, this movie is an hour and 35 minutes, and for the first hour and 30 minutes, I was like, this is the best thing I've seen all year. I love this. And then the ending happens, and it's like, it's not necessarily a bad ending. It's just, it's going to be a very divisive ending. Some fans are going to be okay with it. Uh, Like I said, I'm okay with it. I'm not going to say I enjoyed the way it ended, but I'm okay with it. I'm okay with what... Uh, Brian Bertino gave us, but I know there's going to be a lot of horror fans that just rail on that ending and just, you know, basically say things like it ruined a perfectly good movie or blah, blah, blah. But like I said at the very beginning of the show, I feel like this is 2020's Hereditary. And like Hereditary, it's going to be a divisive movie. There's going to be people who absolutely love it. You know, the the A24 fans like myself are going to love a movie like this, whereas you know, uh, you know the, the more traditional horror fans who like slashers and monster movies, things like that, might not gravitate towards this one. But in my opinion, it's one of the three best films I've seen this year. Horror films, anyway. So, yeah. Cut me off, Mike, before I keep talking. Um, <laughs> I was going to say, what I brought up in general thoughts, but I kind of cut myself off. We're seeing a trend right now, and I was trying, after watching the movie, I was trying to, like, piece together why that might be but we're seeing a trend in a lot of horror right now that's kind of dealing with um abandonment of like the elderly in your family the guilt uh isolationism and kind of like the guilt and shame of like our generation and i'm talking like you know because me and you venom were uh what eight years apart but generally we're kind of the same because you're gen x right 
We're ten um, years apart. Ten? Oh, yeah. I thought we. Uh, You're nineteen eighty, thought... right? Yeah. Yeah, we're yeah, ten we're... years. You oh, and thought... me are four years. Yeah, because me and for some reason I thought you were seventy-two. Okay. Well, anyways, you're ex. I'm like right at the tail end of ex, but we both like so our parents' generation. Um, for those of us, you know, who still have parents that are alive, they're kind of reaching like you know the borderline elderly age now, and it seems like a lot of the directors are more our age, and I'm almost wondering if it's like them kind of reflecting because our our parents' age, they would be like the baby boomer age, and then we would be X or millennials, just depending on where exactly we fall in line. And maybe as our age group sees our parents getting older, and maybe, you know, a lot of Xers kind of like, you know, left home, rejected kind of like the baby boomer philosophy, and went on to create their own lives. And maybe they're, you know, they reflect on that because it just seems like we're getting like a good amount of these movies where it deals with um, people, you know, characters coming home to tie up loose ends or care for family that they like left and haven't spoke to in a long time. Because you, you get that from this, the, the brother and sister have like kind of been, I, I don't know. It seems like maybe abandoned, but they, you know, took off and they haven't really been around. And now that the dad's dying, they come back to help the mom. And, you definitely, especially with the uh, the sister in this, she seems like she feels really kind of guilty because how she refuses to leave the dad, even regardless of the circumstances going on, where you would think any sane person would get the hell out of there as soon as possible. She can't bring herself to do it. Um, so, I, you know, I, a lot of times this happens not just in the horror genre, but just genres all over but especially the horror genre you start to get um reoccurring themes in certain time periods i just wonder if like because a lot of directors are kind of like in our age group that they're reflecting on themes with you know their parents getting older and maybe reflecting and relating to real life circumstances it's entirely possible i mean this pairs so well with Relic that it's almost scary that they came out entirely. They came out like within what, three, four months of each other. Yeah, because I think like a yeah. movie like we we did bring up Hereditary. Now Hereditary, I think, flirts with these themes, but by the end of Hereditary, we see that the events were much more laid in motion purposely. Yeah. Um. Yeah. They they kind of throw in some of like you know obviously, um the mom has some of that going on, but they kind of go in a different direction where this and relic are very similar in the sense that it's, there's obviously abandonment and guilt and shame for that, that haunts the character. And then it kind of goes from there, but man, yeah, I thought this movie was really well done. I I would say the two major things some people will have a problem with the abrupt ending probably. And then I think other people might have issues with the fact that we don't really get like any specific reason. Okay. I, I've read a couple explanations just cause I was kind of curious myself if there was anything I missed and most, the best that a lot of like the deep dives into the movie can come up with is like, well maybe um, because uh 
they were kind of like the the older couple the dad or yeah the dad was like isolated himself he made himself like an easy target for the devil um because it's like him and the wife or him and yeah him and his wife kind of alone on the farm so maybe circumstantially because we don't really get a hundred percent sure reason why the devil went after him so that's kind of a little ambiguous but to me it's like it it kind of doesn't it kind of didn't affect my enjoyment of the movie because it's like it almost doesn't matter at, at, at a certain point it's just you're just kind of like enthralled with what's going on on the screen mm-hmm. no absolutely like i said and, the imagery the imagery in this movie definitely uh adds uh, a great element to it um don was talking about the perfectly placed jump scares in the movie that kind of break the tension of the slower pace um, ultimately, I at no point in this film thought that it was going too slow. Now, I also understand that I am a fan of slow burn horror, so you know I appreciate that, and I understand that I'm a little biased on that. But I didn't personally feel that this movie was that slow, and I think part of it was the placement of the jump scares, because there's not really that many. You could probably count them on one hand, the amount of jump scares in the movie. Um, but they are placed um, nicely, at least the ones in the first two acts. Obviously, the third act is going to have the highest concentration of them, but um, for the most part, like I said, since they're not fake-out jumps and you know they were legitimate and earned, I'm very okay with it. So, yeah. And I, I, God, I feel bad for the brother, too, because for all intents and purposes, he... He had given up on the situation anyway. He he was not going to affect the devil taking the dad's soul because you brought up that like the dad had to be alone for it to happen, and the brother right. had abandoned the situation. He's like, screw this. Like, I need to go take care of my family. So maybe the devil was like, well, I can't risk the chance of him coming back. Or maybe it's almost like a grudge type thing where once you're touched with that devil curse, like it's stay like it's going to stay with you. I thought it was partially a punishment because, I mean, don't forget, they talk about, you know, the th- kind of the major theme of this movie is that, you know, there's nothing sadder than a soul that's alone at the end. And um, I feel like the with with, uh, with Michael and Louise both leaving home and not visiting and calling, that's their way of leaving them alone, even to the point where Louise was there at the end. Louise technically was there, but the dad was still quote-unquote alone. I don't think they were necessarily talking about physical loneliness so much as like just emotionally being uh, abandoned, you know? Because, uh-huh. I mean, Louise may have been there at the end, but she was definitely more scared for herself for her own soul and for her own well-being. Even though she she was still solidly concerned about that, it was still number two for her. And I think that's just a form of that family abandoning dad to the point where it left him susceptible to the devil. So um, at first, I mean, when, when, I thought, when I watched it the first time, I honestly thought that Michael's end was a punishment for leaving Louise alone. On, on on the second and third watches, I realized, nah, uh, he's being punished for stuff that he did years earlier. Nothing that he did actually on this particular trip. Because ultimately, him and Louise were both trying to be very helpful. They knew that their dad's life was at the end. They had no idea that their mom's life was as close to the end as it was, but... Um, yeah, I, I personally think that these two are being punished. Like, there are biblical themes in this movie, you know? Yeah, there's a priest. Yeah, they mentioned the devil. 
but there's a lot of like Christian practices that they talk about here. And family is one of the biggest ones. And, you know, always being a part of your family, being engaged and, you know, basically taking care of each other, which is something that Louise and Michael did not do. So, you know, that's just one angle that you can kind of look at the movie at that. It is kind of like a biblical punishment, if you will. Otherwise, you could just go with the grudge angle and just be like, well, once you step foot in that house, you're fucked. So, you know, that's just as valid as my thought, too. So whatever you go with, you're not incorrect. Um, And that's the great thing about a movie like this is that it leaves us with, you know, potential different ideas. You know, you could ask five different people who saw this movie and they might give you five different explanations of what the wicked actually is. And that's what's great about these kind of you know, more artistic horror films like that. There's so much more to peel away and discuss than just, you know, what's at the surface. But even if you take this movie just at face value, it's still awesome. That's what's mm-hmm. that's what's great about it. I mean, you can you can reflect and, you know, talk about some of the themes that are in the film, or you can just take it at face value as a family that's being, um, you know, haunted by the devil. Boom. One word uh, syn- or one line synopsis that's just as valid as a five-page essay on what I think the movie's about. So it, it's up to the individual. So like I said, take it at face value or take it as some kind of you know commentary on society and how, how we treat the older generation. But either way, I think the movie's enjoyable regardless of what angle you come at it from. Yeah, I agree with all that. Very good, and mm-hmm. it's, it's going to be interesting to see where on my list of falls because it's definitely going to be on there. I can't imagine it gets knocked out. I mean, we're already in mid-November. Yeah, I mean, like I said, it's solidly in my top three. I can't imagine it falls out of my top five before the end of the year. But stranger things have happened. I mean, we had some really good movies come out in December last year, so who knows? It could happen again. We'll see. Well, you still yeah. have to watch Freaky. <laughs> I have to. I don't see a gun to my head. <laughs> Coming up next week on Fresh Cuts. <laughs> well, I, 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 I won't even get to see it because theaters aren't even open here. So. Oh, yeah, we'll see it eventually. But it, it's not yeah. a priority for me. Even though it's getting great reviews and I've heard nothing but positive things about it, I feel the same way I felt about Happy Death Day. Like It's like I'm not ultra excited to go see it, but I got a feeling I'm going to walk out of the theater or, you know, it, not a theater, but I'm going to walk out of my living room uh, enjoying it a lot like I did with Happy Death Day. So we'll see. Yeah, I mean, that that's my kind of like, I, I'm, I'm feeling two ways about it because, yes, reviews are good, but I'm like, but when I'm reading the reviews, I'm like, but is it a horror movie? That's yeah, exactly. It looks like a solid comedy. And, you know, I mean, I try not to watch trailers. I accidentally saw the trailer for this because, like I said, it's kind of set up like a teen comedy for the first, like, half of the trailer. And then yeah. once I realized it was a horror movie, it's like, ah, oh, shit. And I, and I stopped the trailer. But um, from what I saw, yeah, it definitely looks, you know, solidly in the comedy realm with some horror aspects. I mean, you're dealing with a serial killer, so of course, but... I don't know. It's, it, you know, it, it might be great. I hope it is. I really genuinely do. It's just not something that I'm going to run out and watch right away. I mean, if it, if it ends up falling in our laps for the show, of course I'll watch it. But as far as paying 20 bucks for a in theater or in home theater rental, nah, fuck that. 
<laughs> oh, uh, anyway, so um, now that we're at the end of the show, folks, um, I did want to ask one quick uh, little bit of participation from the listeners. Um, for those of you who are regular listeners to Fresh Cuts, you may have noticed that my walkthrough today was a little bit shorter than usual, um, a little bit more uh, based on just the specific plot points that were needed. I didn't go into as many details on individual scenes. And the reason for that is I tried something new on this episode. Um, um, basically, for the first hundred or so episodes that we've done, I basically do the walkthroughs on memory alone. And for the regular listeners, you might remember, sometimes I'll forget a scene and I'll talk about it at the end. You know, when I'm done completely talking about the walkthrough, I'll be like, oh, shit, I forgot to talk about this scene. So what I did this time is I watched the movie multiple times and I actually made an outline for my walkthrough. So that's why, you know, I mean, because ultimately we're only about, what, an hour and a half into this episode and we're and we, we've already shot the shit for like 20 minutes since the walkthrough ended. So... Uh, obviously a much shorter walkthrough. So what I'd like to know from the listeners, do you prefer the, the shorter walkthrough that I did today that just goes over the major plot points? Or would you guys prefer that I stick with my more detail-oriented walkthrough where I actually talk about every scene that I can remember in my head? Um, which obviously is going to make the shows a little bit longer, but ultimately I don't think many podcast listeners have a lot of concerns about the length of a show. You know, if it's 90 minutes or 120 minutes, it's not that much of a difference, honestly. So, um, like I said, hit us up on the Facebook page. If you want to drop me an email, you can hit me up at mrvenompodcasts at gmail.com. Or, like I said, hit us up on the Facebook, Twitter, or uh, my Instagram, and just let me know what you prefer. Did you like the quicker walkthrough, or were you, or would you prefer the more detailed ones? That's all, folks. Thank you very much for that. If they want to walk through or run through or a jog through. Oh, I like that. Yeah, walkthroughs <laughs> or run throughs. What do you like? Hey, we should actually shit. We should just do a uh, what should I call it? A, a poll. Yeah, why not? Yeah, walkthroughs or run throughs. What's better? <laughs> <laughs> All right, then. So that's it for me. Yep. All right. Um, oh, Don, did you have any final comments on it? I can't add anything else that you guys have already said, so. Cool. All right. Well, let's uh, find out where we can hear all of us. Um, I know I have a couple new things, so uh, Venom, what do you got? All right. Well, for me, um, <clears throat> um, still... Most of my shows are still on hiatus, and, and then this past week, I missed another episode of It's Not Horror Okay, since I was uh, I was dealing with a, I don't know, some kind of stomach bug that was just wrecking me all day, so unfortunately, that's the second episode of It's Not Horror Okay in a row that I've missed, but I know the guys and lady um, watched Repo Man from... 1980-something, the older Repo Man, the 80s Repo Man. Um, and um, I was not on that episode, but look for that on the Dark Discussions Podcast Network. Um, I will be doing a guest spot this weekend on the 22 Shots of Moods and Horror podcast, where it is, of course, November, which is Italian Horror Month on 22 Shots. And um, for my episode, we're going to be looking at three films from the director Alberto DiMartino. Those films are The Killer is on the Phone, Holocaust 2000, and The Antichrist. Um, so look out for those. Uh, that should be on... 
Uh, that'll be available, I guess, either this weekend or early next week. Look out for that. Those of you that listen to 22 Shots of Moods and Horror. Um, one little bit of good news that I do have is that one of my shows is back. Yes, in the Mic of Madness. I may have mentioned it last week. Rebecca Reinhardt is finally back from all of her independent horror adventures on the East Coast. Uh, we are back, and um, what we decided to do is, we, you know, since we haven't done a show in like four or five months, we really wanted to get together and do something. So rather than doing movie reviews, uh, what we decided to do, and anybody who listens to In the Mic of Madness knows that all three of us are a bunch of degenerate fucks. Uh, so what we decided to do is we're actually doing the top ten spank bank scenes in horror history. Yes. Those scenes <laughs> of nudity that make us want to reach for our willy. Um, we're doing. We're basically doing a top ten of our favorite, basically our favorite nude scenes in cinematic horror history. So uh, look out for that. That should be available on the Prescribed Films uh, podcast network sometime later this week or early next week. And then the last thing is the main show, No More Room in Hell. We will be recording an episode which I believe is episode number 26. We'll be recording that this weekend, and that should hopefully be available by the middle to end of next week. Um, those are Mike's picks, actually. So I'll let Mike talk about the two movies we're doing on, in, uh, excuse me, on uh, the main show, No More Room in Hell. And that is all from me. All right. What do you got, Don? Uh, so, um, unfortunately, I don't have much. Uh, we're, I'm still waiting on uh, events to be released on uh, Bay of Blood. Um, although, I do have a s- slight announcement to make. Uh, me and Venom are going to be joining forces in an upcoming podcast. Uh, basically, details are still in the uh, early stages at this point. So, uh, we're still working things out, but... Um, Hopefully sometime soon, uh, Venom and I will have a, uh, another new show to um, promote out for the for everybody. So, uh, like Woo-hoo! I said, yeah, we're just uh, early stages of everything. We, we're basically just forming everything out in uh, you know, the early stages of shows like you normally do. So, um, yeah, uh, look for it. Uh, I'd probably say by the end of the month would probably be a fine launching point for what's going to happen but uh yeah until then uh basically just uh latest episodes of fresh cuts and whatever phil decides to release on bay of blood because i don't know what's going on there and i i don't know the schedule i don't know all the releases i don't know what's what's done and ready to be released so cool cool Alright, so as far as I go, I just did a guest appearance actually filling in for Venom, who's a regular co-host on the NFW uh, commentary show with Neil Lemoy, Heather, Scott, and who else? Someone else was there, too. Android Um, Virus. There you go, Android Virus. So, uh, that was fun. First time I've been on there. I've been talking about going on there for a while. Neil has like a few different shows, and I've t- you know we've we've kind of had chats about me going on there. It's usually just been uh, a matter of like when he starts, if I can hurry up and get online on time. But that was a hell of a time. Commentary shows are usually fun, 
And uh, I I know the last Fresh Cuts, I mentioned Burning for Springboard. I don't know if we had already recorded, but that uh, new episode of that has been recorded. And then first time ever I did a guest spot on um, Ricky Morgan's rad movie Rama. We did Miami Connection. If, if no one has seen that, it's basically a karate rock and roll band fighting off some uh, ninjas. <laughs> and it's it, everything about Miami, a, a little bit of everything related to what you would think Miami is, is in that movie. It's absurd, but it's really fun. And then add um, this a is, huge fucking dose of cocaine. Yes, yes. <laughs> okay. um, so for for anyone not familiar with that show, it's it's Ricky's kind of 80s movie show. It was a solo cast for a long time, but he he said like so many people hit him up to do uh, episodes with him. And I, I guess by chance I was the first one I hit him up a long time ago. So he kind of went back through the requests and he just randomly hit me up and said, all right, I'm going to start having guests now. So uh, that should be out probably in a couple of weeks. So yeah, um, two couple of guest spots in a week. So that's fun. And then no more room in hell venom. You mentioned it. Uh, we should be recording this coming up weekend. Uh, the picks are uh, Raw Meat, also known as Deathline, and Creep. And it uh, this isn't the Creep, um, most recently, the Duplass movie. It's a different um, Creep from, I believe, 2004. And yeah, the kind of thing those two are... Uh, right, right. The theme kind of is like subway dwelling horror. Or somewhat, I guess, <laughs> if I could put it into those terms like that. But yeah, that will be coming up. Me, Venom, Derek, uh, and possibly a guest. So uh, look out for that coming up soon. And that's all I got. So fresh cuts. Um, I don't know what we're doing next. Plenty of movies. We'll figure it out. <laughs> <sighs> all right, guys. You ready to get out of here? I think it's time. all right listeners thanks again we will catch you next time later hail Satan